0: everybody welcome to latter-day struggles this is your host valerie and i am really grateful as usual to be with you today for yet another podcast conversation about how we can become more psychologically and spiritually whole as members of or somehow connected to the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints so today i am going to jump into some fantastic content that I take no credit for. I will, of course, um, go ahead and talk about some of my thoughts and feelings as I go. But I today am once again going to stand on the shoulders of a great scholar. Today we're going to be looking through and talking about a booklet that I ran across that is written by someone who I am just gaining more and more and more respect for all of the time. You might recognize the name Gregory Prince. If you don't, that's okay. He is also. Coincidentally, at least for me, he is someone who was a very, very key, a key player in the Latter-day Saint faith crisis report that we have just been going into in some detail on this podcast. So as promised, I wanted to address some of the questions and some of the concerns that many of us have that have been at least contributing factors to faith and trust crisis here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that have to do with a lot of the uh, social issues that our church is struggling with, and in particular, uh, last episode, I talked with Kate Gregory from In Her Image about some issues around uh, gender, uh, power, and patriarchy, and specifically, um, we integrated how fear of an idea of the feminine divine plays into a lot of our current struggles um, with faith and trust in our institution. And today I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. We're still talking about power. We're still talking about gender. We're still talking about sexuality. And I'm going to go deeply into one of the more fascinating and helpful books. Uh, It's a booklet, actually, that I have ever read to help me better understand uh, the struggles, um, the very legitimate struggles that many of us are having around. Uh, gender and sexuality issues and how they are being addressed, especially as it um, relates to, um, in specific on this episode today, we're really going to be talking about um, the idea of, or or at least the, so we got the big umbrella, LGBTQIA+, which of course is a composite of a lot of different presentations and experiences of people. In this particular booklet that I'm going to be talking about, written by Gregory Prince, He really wants to focus in on the LGB portion of that long acronym. okay? So the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and he wants to talk about, and I want to talk about, um, and riff with you guys today about the science that has been discovered that justifies our concerns. Okay, so the booklet that I am referencing here, and then I'm going to be offering my own thoughts and feelings and opinions on as I go, as per usual, this booklet is called science versus dogma biology challenges the lds paradigm of homosexuality okay and so as i mentioned before we're going to really be focusing today on the lgp lgb of the lgbtqia plus movement and next in the next episode i'm actually going to broaden that out and we're going to kind of talk about all of the uh, sexual and gender minorities because I'm going to do a psychological analysis of Carolyn Pearson's No More Goodbyes book, which I think we should all put our scriptures down for at least a few days or a week or two and just read that book and it'll change all of our lives forever. Um, At least it changed mine. So not wanting to speak for the group, but I can really um, proselytize that book um, all day long as far as the impact it has had on uh, my growing understanding of this very crucial topic. And it's crucial because it hurts people. And if we are hurting people, we need to learn how um, to not hurt people. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in to Prince's booklet, Science versus Dogma. Okay, so as I mentioned before, Prince is really locking in on LGB. He also, in this study, wants to, when you do a good study, you talk about what you're going to talk about and you also sort of talk about the limits of what you're not going to be addressing. And I want to make clear, as he did, that this is not because these things are not important. It's just simply because this is not, he wants to talk about what he did study and what he'll be focusing on what he didn't study. These particular scientific studies that he's going to be making reference to have to do with uh, gay men. And the reason why he studied this is because in his own opinion, um, the LDS church has really um, locked in on and been very, very critical of um. And sort of uh, sort of demonized um, the gay, the gay male. Okay, so so he starts out by talking about the prevalence of homosexuality. He um, in his own studies has found that there is a general consensus that between three and a half and five percent of adults throughout the world self-identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Uh, there is no persuasive evidence that the percentage has varied significantly across time and geography. But he also goes on to say, while not representing the majority within a given species, homosexuality is a common phenomenon within the animal kingdom at large. This is a quote, um, I'm quoting, so I'll continue to quote, LDS uh, Apostle Boyd Packers claims to the contrary, notwithstanding when he said without documentation that animals do not pair up with their own gender. uh, Prince goes on to say, a well-documented study of sheep showed that given a choice, 8% of rams made it exclusively with other rams. Long-term same-sex pair bonding has been reported in, oh, I'm not going to be able to say this word right, ungulates and in some birds. Okay, something else that I think is important to think about whenever there's a study of this nature there's the reported statistic, and then you always have to make accounts for the fact that um, many of the, that number is going to probably inevitably be lower uh, when the issue is heated and there's shame associated with it culturally, because a lot of, there's going to be a lot of, um, it's it's gonna be an underreported number. Okay, he goes on to talk about, um, with regards to the prevalence of homosexuality in the animal kingdom, um, this is uh, Prince speaking, a standard reference on the subject of homosexuality in animals published in 1999, documents homosexual behavior in nearly 500 species of animals with an estimate. Seven years later, um, the number actually went up to uh, 1,500. And then he says, I will leave it to you to ponder why this trait um, perseveres among such an astonishingly broad array of species. Prince then goes on to sort of talk about the history of at least some of the most um, significant statements that began to be made um, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints regarding homosexuality and these often in some ways followed um right along the trajectory of what the culture at large was uh talking about and what their feelings and experiences were early on um i'm not going to go ahead and quote all of those things but just in general we we all have a pretty good idea that it was pretty um hostile and there was a lot of pathologizing um there was i'm gonna actually go into this a little bit more later but Um, he he just kind of sets the stage for helping us understand um, the way the church sort of um, saw, uh, feared, um, and experienced the homosexual population. And he says this, all of these um, were done with the best of intentions. Indeed, what intentions could be better than saving a soul from hellfire? And all of these statements were without a shred of scientific evidence to support either choice or social factors, such as education or recruitment, as causes of homosexuality. So at large, the culture was completely ignorant as to the cause or the origins of homosexuality. And um, Prince does go on to say, however, that um, into the 70s, um, little was known. Science had very, very little to say in the 1970s about the actual nature of homosexuality. Uh, policy at the church level, and this is not just us, but this is um, in general, um, lots of conservative Christianity and throughout the world, actually, policy was informed by dogma, not data. Prince actually goes on to state that when he was getting his doctoral studies degree in pathology at UCLA in 1973 through 75, there was not yet a single graduate course offered to those um, in the field of molecular biology. And molecular biology has, in fact, been the key to our understanding the nature of and the origins of homosexuality. Okay, so as molecular biology became more and more of a maturing field uh, and and gene gene sequencing became more routine, the hunt for what they call a gay gene was on. The assumption was that homosexuality, like many, many physical traits such as eye color and hair color... Would be determined by one gene, as it is generally um, as it has become apparent that there is no gay gene. Behavioralists began to decide that it must actually be, in fact, as they supposed beforehand, that it was in fact something that was either heritable, or that it was something that um, that was um, based on social factors, education, or recruitment. Okay, back to back to the quote with Prince. However, he said. Um, there was, in fact, um, more to be learned as far as homosexuality that was independent of the fact that there was no, and still I believe is no, gay gene. He does say, I want to walk you through a summary of how science has informed us about homosexuality. I do this as a scientist who has, who has spent over four decades in biomedical research. I'm, I'm quoting Prince here. This is not me. <laughs> I'm not a, a researcher in biomedical research, as you well know. Okay. Back to the quote, bear in mind that what I do will describe this as an ongoing journey and not a destination. This is very much an interim report that he's talking about here in this booklet. He also says that he, his belief is that the arc of science is long and it bends towards truth, which I love that quote. Okay. So we're going to start by talking about how is homosexuality um, connected to genetics. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to define what genetics is. And um, this is just, I grabbed from Google genetics is the study of heredity and the variation of inherited characteristics. Okay. So this is, I'm going to go back to Prince and what he says in the booklet here. He says, um, a man by the name of Dean Hamer, a pioneer in molecular biology of sexuality did not find the gay gene that he sought, but he did find that gay brothers who had increased uh, that gay brothers had an increased probability of sharing markers on the XQ28 region of the X chromosome while not identifying a single cause underlying male homosexuality Hamer's work which has been confirmed broadly by other laboratories provides strong evidence of a contribution of a certain gene the Q I'm sorry the XQ28 and hence there is in fact a correlation between homosexuality and one's genetics. Okay, more recent studies have shown that an additional marker, this one is on chromosome eight, is shared between homosexual brothers at a rate significantly higher than between straight brothers. Okay, I'm gonna close the quote here for just a second and and talk to you guys about this. What this study is showing is that while it's not as simple as it being there being a certain gene, if you have this gene, then you're going to be homosexual. And if you don't, then you're not. They are actually showing tight correlations between certain patterns, um, certain markers um, on a certain chromosome, in this case, chromosome eight, or um, shared markers on the X chromosome. So they're definitely saying there is absolute correlation And there is um, connection, at least. I hate to sort of talk about whether it's cause or correlation, but what they're basically saying is that there is, in fact, some connection between one's genetics and one's gayness. Okay, back to the quote. Before molecular biology came of age, family studies, wherein homosexuality clusters in certain families, and twinning studies pointed towards a significant, although not a decisive role in genetics. So twin studies are particularly compelling. This is where they take uh, two twins and they study them and see how they are similar and how they're different. Okay, so he goes on to say there are two types of twins. Identical twins have identical DNA sequences, but while fraternal twins have variable percentages of DNA sequences with the others, with each other. So they're not identical, obviously. If genetics were the only factor underlying homosexuality, then one would would expect 100% concordance between identical twins. That is, both twins would be either heterosexual, or homosexual. If genetics were not a factor at all, one would expect the same concordance among fraternal twins as among identical twins, um, since fraternal twins develop in uh, the same in in the utero environment. In fact, the numbers fall between the two extremes. The concordance amongst identical twins is in fact up to 60%. But amongst fraternal twins being homosexual really is only correlated by about 15%. Therefore, there is strong evidence that while genetics is a factor, it is not the only factor that determines sexual orientation. Okay, then we're gonna go on to another part, which is a separate whole thing that is called epigenetics. Okay, so I'm gonna describe to you a little bit about what epigenetics is. So I just finished talking to you about two factors that the research has shown makes genetic um, genetic connection with homosexuality. Now we're going to talk about epigenetics. Okay, so epigenetics, for those of you who are wanting you know to really understand this, it's different than genetics. Remember, genetics is the study of heredity and the and the variation of inherited characteristics. so If we were just talking about genetics, it's just something that's inherited from generation to generation. Now, if you move into the field of epigenetics, this is a newer field. This is the study of changes in organisms caused by modification of gene expression, okay, Um, rather than alterations of the genetic code itself. I'm going to go ahead and repeat that because I think it kind of is a little bit of a complex um, phenomenon. Um, I know when I was learning all about epigenetics, it took me a few times to sort of make sense of it. So genetics is simply inherited characteristics, gene express, um, just how your gene is coded. Epigenetics means that in the process of, uh, organisms growing and developing, sometimes genes are modified and they're expressed differently. The very best way I came to understand this when I was personally learning about epigenetics was that sometimes um, the genetic code is the same, but certain things are expressed differently. Or in other words, there may be a a metaphorical switch that's flipped that causes the genetic code to behave differently, even though the code itself is the same. Okay, so... The gene is the same, but the way it expresses itself in one's lived experience is in fact different. Okay. So let's just have some fun and talk a little bit about how they have come to discover through science that epigenetics does in fact play a large part in one's homosexuality. Okay. I'm going to go back to Prince. He says this, the first, this is so interesting, you guys. Okay. So just hold on tight. This is, this is fascinating. The first Um, way that epigenetics expresses itself in gayness is this. Okay. He says this, the first is a birth order effect, which um, seems to be only apparent in males. It is estimated that 15 to 28% of gay men owe their sexual orientation to birth order. While the mechanism is not completely understood, it appears to be due to interactions between the male fetus and his mother's immune system, that have increased consequences for each subsequent male birth. Okay. So what you're, I'm hoping you're picking up on, I'm closing the quote here and I'm talking to you directly is that this is not this child, this male child is not in this case genetically, um, gay, but because of what happens between the, the male in, in utero. And as he, um, reacts to his mother's immune system, that child can have an increased probability of being gay the later on he is in birth order. Okay, back to the quote. After the birth of one son, the likelihood of each subsequent son of the same biological mother being gay increases by 33%. Okay, so check check out these numbers though. If the likelihood of the first um, is 3%, then that of the second would be 4%. Um, The um, effect is additive, such that the seventh son would have a 17% chance of being gay. Daughters do not experience a similar phenomenon, nor is the effect on sons influenced by the number of older sisters. So this is only if there are multiple boys. Um, Back to the quote: the only effect is true. And oh, oh, sorry. And this is crazy, you guys. Check this out. And the effect is only true for right-handed sons. Prince himself says, "Who knew that this could be so complicated?" So what you're probably picking up on is whether it's causation, correlation, they're noticing that there is definitely a consistency here where in in utero, um, there is something that happens that flips on um, or that there's an interaction um, between the mother in utero and um, later born sons, particularly when they have older brothers. Okay, so another example... Of how epigenetics can impact homosexuality is as follows. This is Prince. Another example is probably more important in causing homosexuality. It is called epigenetically canonized sexual development, canalized sexual development. In plainer English, at the very early stage of fetal development, epigenetic factors that are not part of the DNA can be passed from either parent to the fetus, affect the way affect the way the sex of the fetal brain is imprinted okay what that means is this this is prince talking testosterone is present in all developing fetuses but at higher levels in some males but in order for testosterone to exert its effect in imprinting maleness into the fetal brain there must be a receptor for it within that brain okay so i I want you to think about this guys um I'm not quoting. I'm talking myself to you now. (laughs) So testosterone is a hormone and for testosterone to be effective, there has to be what is called a receptor. And basically the way I like to think about this is if you have, um, testosterone is like the vehicle and the receptor is like the parking lot. There has to be somewhere for the, the testosterone to park itself. It has to be able to, um, land somewhere. Okay back to the quote, generally male fetuses have higher levels of testosterone and higher levels of testosterone receptors. So there's lots of cars, and, and there are lots of parking spaces for males. They have more testosterone and they have more receptors back to the quote, while females have lower levels of testosterone and lower levels of testosterone receptors. That's what makes male males, more masculine and females, more feminine. Okay. Back to the quote, in some instances, however, there is a mismatch that is determined by an epigenetic factor inherited from a parent. So what we're saying here, you guys, is their genetics are not different, but based on something that goes on in utero, sometimes there is a mismatch between testosterone, the testosterone chemical and the the receptors. So there is sometimes not enough places to park the testosterone in the male brain. Or sometimes there can be a mismatch in the other direction. Okay, back to the quote. This is Prince speaking. This can result in male embryos with lower levels of receptors, in which case testosterone cannot fully exert its masculinizing effect on the brain. So the testosterone is there, but there's nowhere for it to park itself so that it can have um, male expression or it can develop, um, uh, more masculine expression in the uterus, in the in the brain of this developing um, uterus. Um, I'm sorry, in this in the brain of the developing in the brain of the developing fetus. My goodness, that took me a second to get out. Okay, back to the quote. Alternatively, female embryos can have high levels of receptors, in which case even a normally low testosterone level levels that circulate within the blood of female fetuses are preferentially grabbed by those receptors and allow allowed to exert a masculinizing effect on the brain. Okay. So I'm going to just um, sum this up for you guys. Testosterone has um, a massive impact on, the, on masculinity. And if the male brain doesn't have, has all these, uh, these, you know, stay with my metaphor here, you guys, if the male brain has a lot of testosterone vehicles, but the parking lot is full, the car drives off and there are not, there's not going to be as much masculinity expressed in the developing brain of that fetus on the flip side. If there are extra receptor sites, um, in the little brain of the developing female these receptor sites actually look for and grab more testosterone. And conceivably what he's basically getting at here to stay with my metaphor is um, the parking lot tries to fill itself up. And so the body actually looks for more, more testosterone to fill the parking lot up. And so that's how um, a woman or a small, a small female fetus is going to actually have extra masculine uh, characteristics um, forming in their little brain even before the, this female child is born. Okay. I'm going to go back to the quote here. All of the brain's imprinting occurs prenatally at this time, at the time of puberty, when testosterone or or estrogen levels begin to spike, the imprinted brain is impervious to this effect, meaning that you can't impact this. This has already been happening. It started happening in utero. Okay. So you can't impact this. You can't change it. In other words, back to the quote, in other words, the female with a fetal masculinized brain will be sexually oriented towards towards women, while a male with a fetal masculinized brain, I'm sorry, with a fetal feminized brain will be sexually oriented towards men. Hormones and hormone therapy notwithstanding what, okay, close quote, what Prince is trying to communicate here is that there are two, um, that there are ways to make sense of from a scientific paradigm that children are born homosexual. It has to do with genetic factors, uh, the two that were described at the very beginning. And then it also has to do with epigenetic factors, which means there is an impact that there's something that happens between the the brain development of the baby and its relationship with his his or her mother in utero that creates the brain of that little child, uh, this prenatal child that then will move into development in their later years in life and will, um, impact who and how their brain maps sexual attraction. This is, um, what happens it's happened before they were born. There's nothing that you can do necessarily to change this. This is a scientific fact. So Prince closes this section by saying this, the genesis of sexual orientation is an area of science that is undergoing much cutting edge research. And it is certain that future discoveries will elucidate more examples of homosexuality being biologically determined, whether through genetics, epigenetics, or through a combination of these. But the bottom line has already been written. Homosexuals are indeed born that way. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and just pause right now because I want to just reflect with you guys how important this information is for our church and for our world at large, uh, maybe maybe before the 1970s when we didn't know, um, we had less of an excuse I'm inclined to think we we never have an excuse truly to marginalize um, minority populations of of any kind and yet here we are and we um, struggle with this uh, mightily as a world and yet as science catches up with these um, cultural norms, it is so incredibly important that we regard science and that we honor science and we find it, um, and we, we experience science as something that is sacred, that teaches us how, um, how these things are, why they are. And it helps us actually, in fact, um, better, um, love people more, more fully. I mean, where you have, there's never a reason to not love them, but now we actually have science backing, backing that doctrine. Okay. I want to jump over to, um, church doc- dogma and how the church has, um, experienced and talked about and continues on, to talk about uh, homosexuality. Okay. So here we go. The earliest, this is uh, back, to, back to the booklet, the earliest church written guide for ecclesiastical leaders published in 1973 chided professionally trained people who differed, differed among themselves in their opinions regarding the cause of homosexuality. Whereas, quote, the gospel makes this issue clear. Homosexuality is a learned behavior, not inborn. General church officers, most notably Apostle Boyd K. Packard, were even more forceful in denouncing any notion of a biological basis. This is a quote by Packard. He says this, there is a falsehood that some are born with an attraction to their own kind with nothing they can do about it. They are just that way and can only yield to these desires. This is a malicious and destructive lie. While it is a convincing idea to some, it is of the devil. No one is locked into that kind of life. Okay. Prince goes on to report this. He says this, if, um, as the sources claimed biology is not the source, then what is LDS church leaders have over a century posited a creative array of causes. The first being of all things, monogamy. (laughs) And the reason why they reported this was because this was a time when they were attempting to justify polygamy. So back in the day, according to Prince's research, the thing that caused homosexuality was in fact monogamy. All right, back to the quote. Others included contagion, satanic influences, pornography, curiosity, and proselytizing. None was tempered by um, uncertainty. And I think what he means by that is that uh, nobody ever um, paused to question the possibility or the probability that maybe um, it was none of those things. And maybe somebody was, in fact, genetic- um, genetically or epigenetically, you know, they were born that way. Okay. Then Prince goes on to say the aversion to the biological exp- explanation of homosexuality is common among other conservative religious traditions, which justify, would they justify their sin-based viewpoint by a highly selective reading of biblical verses. However, Mormons construct, Mormons construct of homosexuality um, as wrong or bad or sinful is more nuanced. President Spencer W. Kimball wrote, quote, "To believe that immoral, immoral behavior is inborn or hereditarily, or is, her, is inborn or hereditary, is to deny that men have agency to choose between sin and righteousness. It is, a, it is inconceivable, as some involved in homosexual behavior claim, he could permit some of his children to be born with desires and inclinations which would require behavior contrary to the eternal plan." Okay, so what um, Kimball here is saying, and of course what Packard said later, is that um, they, there is no possible way that um, this is something that's inborn or something that, is, that could even be seen as neutral uh, because of uh, their understanding of, of the plan of salvation. And of course they also um, are part of a larger culture. At, you know, they're part of a culture at large, which has in general um, and it, you know, struggled in general forever in acknowledging that there is a minority population that um is in a very neutral way um same gender attracted i'm going to go into this a little bit more later but one of the other uh, reasons why our um struggles in the church of jesus christ of latter day saints is more nuanced than uh conservative christianity you know evangelical and protestant christianity is because of our own doctrine around the eternal nature of gender and family um, Prince goes on to say this, yet another explanation derives from the Latter-day Saint belief that one's identity, including gender, began prior to birth, that is spirit beings in a pre mortal state bore the identity that they would have later on as physical personages and would remain unaltered in post-mortal resurrected state. Now, that opens up a whole nother large conversation. If you guys really want to go deeply into this, I would invite you to um, run, don't walk, to uh, listen or read uh, Taylor Petrie's book, Tabernacles of Clay. It is a very deep dive. It's a complex book, very, very good one that talks about the origins and history and the very much changing history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, understanding of premortal gender and how it impacts us today and how it's still being sort of um, made sense of and how it's changed over the time, over the years, a lot of times. Okay. Then Prince goes on to say, using again, as a startling point, the assumption that homosexuality is inherently sinful. This exercise in circular reasoning gets, um, goes on to conclude that God is incapable of making a mistake that would place a person into a st- sinful state because of biological imprinting. And therefore that there could be no biological basis for homosexuality. Uh, Boyd Packard gave this explanation in 1976 quote from our first, from our pre mortal life, we were directed into a physical body. There is no mismatching of bodies and spirits. Boys will become men, masculine, manly men, and ultimately become fathers and husbands. Okay, let me just visit with you guys for a second about this whole idea. Um, what we're going to go deeper into as this podcast episode um, moves on is that the church has, in fact, um, painted itself into a bit of a corner because if we um, are going to rigidly hold on to uh, the sort of dogmas of the nature of the plan of salvation and eternal life, there is in fact no room for homosexuality. Um, Certainly, if if that is not allowed, if that is considered wicked or sinful, then we, in the post-mortal life, then we, of course, have to condemn these folks. Now, the problem is science has moved forward and progressed enough to teach us that people are in fact born... Homosexual. And therefore, what, um, what is called for at this point in time is a lot of psychological um, and emotional maturity in individuals and as institutions to then start really questioning the doctrine. Because if someone is born that way, God does not, um, the God that I worship is not going to give someone a physical body and a physical experience and then say that there is something innately wrong with what that what it means for them to have their human experience. So therefore, the problem can't be with the individual. It must, in fact, be with the dogma or the doctrine. Okay, so let's just move on a little bit here and talk a little bit about what the church has historically done to help people cure themselves from this thing that they have um, held on to as problematic or sinful. Okay, uh, what? Prince talks about is how language itself has evolved from, from, from using words like disease um, and cure to a difficult habit, to a behavior, to a problem. So interestingly, if it is in fact a disease, that needs curing, that is not something that should bar somebody from exaltation and from eternal life. So there has been a lot of a lot of confusion around what exactly this thing is. The good news, of course, is that answers are here. We have more information than we ever used to have. And so neither is it a sin nor is it a disease. But I want to just go ahead with you and trace back how the church has sort of tried to hold on to its original doctrine and make sense of how to um, become unhomosexual so that you can participate in the plan of salvation rather than questioning the plan of salvation um, doctrine itself. Okay. So, first of all, we move into the self help kinds of cures, changing the language, like I just mentioned, to distracting oneself, to substituting one's behavior for a different kind of behavior, to avoidance of certain issues, people, and materials. To avoidance of other gay people, to repentance, and then to social role-playing. So let me just um, go a little bit deeper into each of these um, and just read a little bit of what Prince has to say. Many self-help medias were proposed by church leaders over several years. Um, Apostle Marky Peterson, who counseled hundreds of gay men, advised one merely to distract oneself with music and other materials. Peterson and Kimball, in their pamphlet called Hope for Transgressors, advocated another kind of distraction, wherein heterosexual was substituted for homosexual. Here's a quote um, by, I guess, one of them. Uh, There must be substitution. A person should purge out evil and then fill his life with constructive, positive actions and interests. He will throw away his pornographic materials and will have ceased reading articles about homosexuality and will substitute, therefore, the scriptures and worthy books and articles, which will give the mind proper occupation." So they said um, flee from other gay people, even if it contradicted their responsibility to also guide those who stumbled. And so basically, whether it was distracting yourself by doing something else, substituting one um, book or one activity or behavior with another more um, wholesome, supposedly wholesome book or behavior, you would even be asked to substitute more um, wholesome heterosexual people for your gay friends and then, of course, there was the strategy of repentance. So this is, this is fascinating to me because where we, where we, you know, it's clear that we just, we just haven't known what to make of this whole phenomenon. And again, I, I know that the world at large has not, um, until very recently, had scientific evidence proving that there is, there is genetic and epigenetic component um, components that play deeply into this. But really, we're just kind of all over the board, you know, from distra- distracting oneself. Um, is it a habit? Is it a behavior? Is it a problem? Is it a sin? Is it a choice? Um, in, in all of these cases, of course, I you know, this even is confusing because if it's a disease, it's not a choice. Um, but if it's a sin, it is a choice. And so my heart just goes out to people from across time who have suffered from this because um, their culture has been very um, confused and unkind to them on every level by trying to just figure out a way to um, make sense of it and then make them, of course, change. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the idea of having to repent here. <laughs> Um, Here's a quote by LDS Welfare Services back in 1973. While it is an extremely difficult habit to change, homosexuality can be repented of, as can any other deeply entrenched habit. Let me just spend a second, if I may, on the idea of social role-playing, which Carolyn Pearson goes into great detail in talking a lot about this as she was a victim of this particular phenomenon herself. I'm going to go much deeper into that in um, in the next episode when I do... A book review on her No More Goodbyes book from a psychological lens. But this idea of social role-playing, um, many believe to be, I, it's probably a crapshoot on what is the most damaging, but this is up there. This is what Prince says, by far the most damaging suggestion was social role-playing. That was promised to be the pathway out of homosexuality. Kimball and Peterson wrote, the entrenched homosexual has generally and gradually moved all of his interests and affections to those of his own sex rather than to the opposite sex. And therein is another step. When you feel he is ready, he should be engaged in dating and gradually moving towards the life of the normal. That's so offensive to me. And quote, normal means marriage to someone of the opposite sex. So basically what he's advocating for is, um, swallow those, um, those God given, you know, the, the, who you are and how you self-express Make those go away and pretend to have a different way of viewing yourself, um, others, and the world um, from a different sexual lens than the, one, the lens than the one that you were handed when, you, um, when your little body was forming in, in utero. Okay. Prince concludes this, um, this self-help section um, as he rolls through with us how the church historically has invited people to help themselves out of homosexuality by saying this. He says, in summary, the self-help approach within the LDS church is uh, to curing homosexuality took several forms over several different decades. It did, however, have two things in common. First, they were based on unsubstantiated assumptions that homosexuality is a chosen behavior and is reversible. And second, they didn't work. Okay, so let's move on now. When it became apparent that these self-help cures were not working Uh, What ended up happening um, church-wide was this idea that maybe we needed to move to help from outside sources. I want to make a note of saying here that this wasn't just our church. Of course, a lot of the world and conservative Christianity certainly um, continued to find um, homosexuality uh, repugnant and unacceptable and so they moved into more drastic measures actually of trying to cure people from the, I don't know, the disease or the sin of homosexuality. I guess it depends on when and how and where you were, but it was one of these things or maybe several of those things. But what we moved into is a very sad chapter in the history of, um, of this whole situation where reparative therapy or conversion therapy was practiced, um, it was implicitly acknowledging that it was futile um, for people to help themselves out of homosexuality and that there was no, inf- no cure, in fact, by doing any of the um, aforementioned uh, strategies to uh, will oneself away from homosexuality. And so generally speaking, uh, licensed psychiatrists and psychologists, but also unlicensed entrepreneurs entered into the field of helping people um, become heterosexual and trying to basically, these people were trying to help these people help themselves heal from the, either the disease or the sin of homosexuality. Many of you are aware of this. I won't go into too much detail on this because I just have, there's so much to say on this topic at large, and I've already been going on for a little while, (laughs) but uh, BYU has a very sad history in um, its own, trying its own hand at reparative therapy where the subjects were um, exposed to intense trauma having to do with uh, having a pressure cuff placed on their penis. And uh, there was a monitor that, um, where they would watch pornography that they had to provide themselves And the idea was that um, they would be shocked every time they looked at homosexual or gay pornography. And the idea was that the more they attached the electroshock experience to looking at homosexual, homosexual pornography, the the more heterosexual they would eventually become. Okay. So um, needless to say, this did not work. And not only did it not work, but it was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly traumatic for those um, poor people that were exposed to this terrible um, experiment in in reparative therapy. I'll just read a little bit about this, a couple of personal experiences from some people that uh, had this experience. Um, One subject reported, I was definitely not cured. I was just more messed up. Another who was a part of this electroshock therapy said he was so messed up that he could not allow anyone within six feet of him One um, subject reports his homosexual desires were as strong as ever, but he was unable to touch another man, even for a simple hug, and he had no heterosexual desires whatsoever. And he was furthermore, constantly on the verge of suicide. This is the outcome of those who went through the BYU attempts at electroshock therapy, which is just, uh, just tragic. Gratefully, as at the turn of the century, um, as we hit the year 2000 and beyond, slowly but surely, uh, science was in fact catching up and helping uh, the world of reparative or conversion therapy um, come to a screeching halt because of a couple of situations where where there were uh, some pretty lengthy reports written that found. That reparative therapy was that, that there was no data to support that it was actually working, and that oftentimes not only was it not working but it was actually uh, people that participated in it were experiencing harm. Um, another uh, fatal and fortunate blow came to the world of reparative therapy when um, there was a, a, a court case in two thousand and fifteen that sued on the grounds that reparative therapy was promising a cure that it could not deliver so Luckily, although this definitely did its share of hurting, um, a great deal of people, the, the situation that was going on in BYU at BYU with the shock therapy happened in the mid seventies. And the two cases that I'm making reference to with the extensive report uh, of reparative therapy, therapy, not being effective, that happened in 2009. And then the court case came about in 2015, you guys, that was only just a few years ago. Oh my goodness. Okay, so all of this is going on in the scientific side, uh, where studies are being done, uh, lawsuits are being, um, are, are, there's, there's just a lot going on to really start really putting the pressure on um, advocating for this minority population that is being um, deeply, deeply wounded. And so you've got science really trying to push forward and advance a lot of truth on the other hand, you have uh, religions, um, ours included, that are not guided by uh, science oftentimes, but they're more oftentimes uh, guided by dogma. And so definitely what happens, this again is a, is a problem with a lot of religious environments when science catches up, is rather than listening to the science, they end up actually shooting the messenger Okay, now something that I don't want to leave out because I find it actually rather fascinating is that, uh, so what Prince wants to do is he actually wants to say, you know, we're in, a, we're in a situation here where the church needs to confront the truth of what's actually going on. He, he lays a foundation here for some precedences within the church where they have in fact actually been pretty good at acknowledging science. He says this, the LDS church has actually had a long track record of being on the right side of science. On issues relating to medicine and sexuality, it generally has staked out fairly progressive positions and has implicitly encouraged medical research by LDS clinicians and scientists, regardless of the direction that it leads. The church exhorts its members to seek medical care uh, from competent, licensed healthcare professionals. It does not forbid or discourage blood transfusions it encourages organ and tissue transplantation and it recommends that the donors of organs um, do so for and that it's a selfless act that often results in great benefit to individuals with medical conditions. Okay, so what Prince is trying here to lay a path for is that we have in fact in many situations as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we've done okay. I thought that was pretty generous of him that, that there are places and times where we are on the right side of medical science. However, he does go on to say, but when it comes to homosexuality, church policies began began with the conventional wisdom of the 1960s and essentially have remained there, scientific progress notwithstanding. The church has backed away from the certitude that homosexuality is a choice, although it still punishes homosexuals for expressing their innate immutable sexuality. It even acknowledges that it does not know exact causes of homosexuality, however, It has never taken a step in acknowledging that science has made abundantly clear and continues to make clearer with the passage of time and the accumulation of data that it's biological. It is an indelible, unchangeable imprint deep within the anatomical brain that can result from an increasing variety of known causes, some genetic, some epigenetic, none of which is a conscious choice. Okay, you guys, I know this has been a really, really content-dense conversation uh, that we've had together today or that I've had with you on this episode, but we are coming to a conclusion. So what does Prince feel is the inevitable outcome of this discovery? He basically feels like the church is going to inevitably have to confront the truths that science has already elucidated for us. He says that there are two lines of reasoning that suggest the possibility, if not the inevitability of a substantive change, um, in the, in the church, in the future, the reason number one that he gives that the church is going to eventually have to make a change is a question of ethics. Okay. I'm going to read his words here. He says this to go against scientific reality in the abstract, as in with say, for example, evolution deniers. It may be ignorant, but it may not, But it's probably not ethical because it doesn't actually hurt people. However, if we go against scientific reality in ways that hurt people, that does in fact cross an ethical line. Legions of LGBT Mormons and sadly ex-Mormons bear witness to the damage done to them and their families by homophobic policies, procedures, and doctrines. And, a commu- and the community attitudes that are rooted in unscientifically views, in unscientific views of homosexuality. Okay. This is a catch guys. Listen to this because this is a huge piece here that I just, it rolls through my mind all the time. Prince says this, even one suicide attributable to church policy is too many. We have as a church problems and big problems with institutionalized homophobia. And that is not okay. And so this is a question of ethics. We need as an institution to catch up with science and acknowledge that homosexuality is something that people are born with. Okay. The second line of reasoning that Prince gives is pragmatism. He says this, while many resigned their church membership or simply walked away after the af- in the aftermath of Prop 8, Unofficial numbers suggest that the effect of the policy seven years later were far more detrimental to church members. And he goes ahead and gives actually um, some statistics of the probable numbers of people that have left the church um, from the time of Prop 8 um, up until the publication of this article. And the numbers are huge. People are leaving the institution because they are no longer okay with an institution that cannot look at and accept science. Prince does go on to say this um, and gives a lot of credit to, um, to the millennial population. He says this, along with LGBT church members, untold numbers of millennials for whom LGBT issues are paramount have simply walked away an increasing number of families of all ages are also withdrawing. Given the choice of supporting gay children or embracing policies and attitudes that are still demonstrably homophobic, families are choosing solidarity with their children, even if it involves the extreme measure of the entire family resigning the church. All of us know somebody or lots of somebody's, who are in fact resigning membership from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because they simply no longer can stomach a policy that marginalizes an entire minority, minority population and that um, does active harm to many of our friends and loved ones. Then Prince goes on to say the potential for continual hemorrhage, continued hemorrhage leading to significant institutional weakening suggests the wisdom of a reappraisal of policies, procedures and doctrine in light of the current and evolving science, um, a reappraisal that would both be pragmatic and ethical. It would also, it would help the institution Um, not hemorrhage, and it's also the more ethical choice. What stands in the way of such a reappraisal? Prince says this, perhaps the thing that stands in the way, the elephant in the room, is Mormonism's theology of the afterlife, which currently has no room for gay. While never explicitly acknowledged by church leaders, this may be the source of the impasse. With a gayless afterlife as the endpoint, here and now church doctrines and policies represent a de facto reverse engineering. That is, if there's no room for gay in the afterlife, then there can be no legitimate place for gay in this life. Okay. And this is what uh, Prince is proposing, which is going to sound very familiar to you guys because I um, myself bring this up time and time again for a variety of different reasons in this podcast. So he says this, if top-down change that is full embrace of biological paradigm of homosexuality with its logical consequences is unlikely, then there is a plausible alternative for change. Okay. So basically I'm going to summarize his whole thoughts and his stance are it's unlikely that we sit around and wait for this approach to change from the top down. Um, My, my supposition based on my reading between the lines here is because it's very unlikely that they're going to be willing to change the doctrines around a heterosexual eternity. But he does say this, there is a, another plausible alternative for change. And he says, I think that the, the plausible alternative for change comes in the form of social justice, in essence, a bottom up force for change. That means that you and me, you guys, we have to keep bravely respectfully. Um, but in no uncertain terms, talking about how this has to change that we as a church need to basically just keep up with science. Okay, back to Prince. He says, the most potent force, although one that needs patience, will be the maturation of the millennials who simply reject the status quo. Okay, Greg Prince. I think you're amazing and all, but I'm not a millennial. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. So I want him and I want us out there, those of us who are not millennials. <laughs> although I think they're wonderful. I love millennials and I think they are um, leading the charge for sure. But those, um, those of us who are in the older cohorts, need to be, uh, also very active in this cause. Okay. Sorry. I digress. So he basically says the millennials are going to lead the charge by rejecting the status quo. He goes on to say as these millennial church members, (laughs) assuming they hang on long enough in the church at all, as they move up the patriarchal or the hierarchical pyramid, they are likely to bring along with them their worldview and challenge not only the policies, but also the doctrines. They will be emboldened by an increasingly informative body of scientific knowledge about homosexuality, by the fact that doctrinal change has been in fact, a part of life in Mormonism since it's very founding and by a profound sense of social justice that will no longer allow injury or death to one of the church's most valuable constituencies. If they take the time to read their own history, they will understand that not a single significant LDS doctrine has gone unchanged throughout the entire history of the church. And when they come to that understanding, they will look forward instead of backwards, embracing fully the foundational concept of continuing revelation line upon line, and the institution then will change at a most fundamental level. So what Prince here is saying is that it's up to us is that it's up to us. Um, he's giving the millennials a big um, responsibility, but I believe that it's, it's not just the millennials. It's those of us in the church right now, as we have um, enough science, even though like Prince even said, it's, it's growing science. There's more coming out all the time. It's a relatively new field, but we have enough information now, you and me, to address and acknowledge um, and to see and to say and to speak and to be courageous enough to say no more. We can't allow for our homosexual friends to be marginalized um, and oppressed the way they're being currently oppressed right now. Prince goes on to speak about the power of science when he says this, science matters. If we embrace the findings of science, that sexual orientation and gender identity are biologically and indelibly imprinted during fetal development and that they are varieties of normal, then we can become a more just society as well as recipients of the enormous gifts that LGBT people bring to the table. But if we reject the findings of science and insist that homosexuality is just a bad choice that can be unchosen, then all society suffers. The extent and timing of any changes in LDS policy or doctrine cannot be predicted with any accuracy. What can be predicted, and with substantial confidence, is that because LGBT issues are the civil rights issue of our time, as well as the moral issues of our time for millennials. The composition and vitality of the future of the church will be reflective of its ability to project moral authority on these issues. I love what Prince is saying as he closes this up. Basically, he's saying we may not be able to um, necessarily rely on this change to happen From those at the top of the hierarchy of the church but what this does say is that it's on us it's our responsibility to show um, that god-given um integrity that we were taught many of us were taught here um, through our relationship with and the covenants we've made in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints we need to use that integrity and we need to use our brains to notice that science is evolving it's teaching us things that we did not know before and it's teaching us things in defense of the marginalized Okay, so what I want to do as I close this this meaty episode teaching us about uh, the the genetics um, and epigenetics um, and the science of homosexuality today is I want to actually repeat to you guys something that is near and dear to my heart because it was something that I repeated with many of my fellow missionaries back in the mid-90s in the San Francisco, California mission. And this is a quote by the Prophet Joseph Smith And I'm going to read the quote back in the day when I was a missionary, of course, the quote that I'm going to be reading had everything to do with the restoration of the gospel and how we were going to um, boldly go forward and do hard things to bring truth. Now I'm using the same quote, but of course you guys, the context is very, very different, but I want you to listen and think about um, how it's our responsibility um, it's, it's not just our responsibility. It's, it's, it's actually an honor and a privilege that our generation has to step forward and, and be instruments in God's hand in helping bring this truth forward to protect and to truly show what it looks like to, to love people in Christ like ways, especially the people right now who are being profoundly marginalized in our church, um, and in this case, for, this, for the reasons of this podcast, I'm talking about the LGB, the LGB um, community. So, this is uh, the prophet Joseph Smith, and this is what our, our responsibility is, you guys. He says this the standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame. But the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say the work is done. Our work right now is to be a voice for truth and protection of our homosexual family members, friends, brothers, and sisters, and fellow church members. The standard of truth has been erected science is coming forward and saying that this kind of this kind of treatment of this population never has been okay and it's not okay now and there's a higher level of accountability now because we know more when we know better we need to do better and just as this quote says there may be persecution to us there may be pushback there will be people that think that we are um, heretics or apostates, or or all of the the, the languaging that people use when someone um, comes forward to try to push reform. But when the reform is is in the name of protecting beautiful people for just being themselves, then that's the kind of reform that I want to be a part of. And this is the standard of truth that we have been given. And so, if we have the courage. To love deeply and to and to be honest, and to be truly made over in the image of our heavenly parents, in in showing forth what it means to be actual, in fact, children of God, which means to love one another, then we will be upheld by God, and that's how the quote ends. He says, um, "And the purposes of God will be accomplished, because we will have God on our side." I wanted to just um, thank you guys for being here with me today. Um, last but not least, speaking of having served uh, a mission um, back in the 90s in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, as you guys know, if you listen to me and Nathan's podcast um, several episodes back about talking about uh, mandated, the mandated culture of church mission service. Um, anyhow, Nathan and I talked about our mission back then, and we just recently connected with one of Nathan's old mission companions, um, a gentleman by the name of Evan Smith who is really doing some fantastic, marvelous work on um, helping educate us about how to, he's got resources available, and there's a Facebook group and um, that he's one of the facilitators of, and I want to just give you that information and give him a shout out for the good work he's done. He's written a book called uh, Gay Latter-day Saint Crossroads. It is, it is available for uh, free digitally, or for purchase in paperback um, at, this is a website, gayldscrossroads.org. Or you can join their Facebook group, which is a support group um, that tackles all things um, LGBTQ plus in the Latter-day Saint uh, context. That Facebook group is called I'll Walk With You. And you're welcome to look into that. Okay. All right. I am worn out. That was a lot of content to offer to you, but I do so because I love you all. I um, am so deeply grateful for the relationships that I am um, so privileged and blessed to be um, gaining in my own life. Um, I'm so grateful for those of you who are joining my small groups. There are two that are full. There are two more that are almost full, and I'm getting ready to kick off a fifth group coming up shortly because they're filling up quickly. If this is something that interests you. Basically, these are space limited groups where we meet synchronously and support one another. I offer a little bit of uh, content and then I work with you on reflecting on some things and I turn the time over to you as group members to process, to heal, to discover, and just basically to feel like you're not alone in your own relationship with the church, with your divine parents, with your savior, Jesus Christ, that um, we're truly a safe haven for people on this faith journey. So if you're interested in more about that, reach out to me at info at or you can always jump onto my, uh, my Instagram page at Latter Struggles Podcast and you can um, direct message me there. If you have not already done so, your ratings and reviews on iTunes or Spotify are incredibly wanted, needed, desired. I'm grateful for all of them. They really help me get recommended to more people that are interested in um, learning more in this, in this space. In the podcasting world, and also they really offer other people a sense of trust when they read your reviews and see um, where my heart is and what I'm trying to do. So grateful to be with you guys today. Um, My next episode is a deep dive into the psychology behind what Carolyn Pearson shares in her book No More Goodbyes. All of these episodes are in the service of working with people and helping you um, better make sense of um, what may feel like a faith crisis and a trust crisis um, that have to do with social issues. And, um, what a lot of people have pointed out that I want to also validate is yes, it does feel like a faith crisis, but what I hope you're coming to realize is that it may begin in faith crisis, but inevitably what it's going to end in is a massive and profound transformation in your soul. And so, um, What feels like crisis is actually a great awakening where you are coming closer to who you're here to become and you're becoming made over in the image of God in each of these experiences that you're having as you move through the disillusionment and the grief. There's something beautiful at the end of this. So stay with me and I will walk with you through it. All right, you guys, take care. Have a good day and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.